The IRS has a detailed plan for achieving a state of zero trust on its information technology networks, something all agencies are under obligation to do for cybersecurity. But the IRS needs to put the right money and people behind the plan, according to an audit by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, TIGTA. We get more now from TIGTA's Director of Enterprise Services, Jana Whitley. Ms. Whitley, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Good morning. What was your main purpose in this particular audit, just to see whether the IRS was following the executive order and the, and the subsequent guidance from OMB that went to every agency on this whole zero trust business? Absolutely. You know, zero trust is actually a large umbrella strategy that combines a lot of different components and IT projects the IRS was already working on anyway. And what we wanted to do is take a look at their planning to address the OMB memo that you mentioned. And, you know, also the executive order came out the year before that, uh, executive order 14028. So we did want to look at how the IRS was addressing, you know, their future planning for to achieve a zero trust architecture. So, you know, essentially the umbrella that includes, you know, all things zero trust architecture there are really kind of three major goals. The first being, and, and each of those goals builds on one another. The first being, you know, all users are untrusted. And that's not just addressing insider threats. That's looking at, you know, to address those situations where a network has been penetrated. So you shouldn't necessarily trust all internal traffic coming through that network or requests for data on that network. So that's really looking at, how to confirm that all users, all devices are both authenticated and authorized sure. with the eventual goal of verifying every access request every time. So that's, and, you know, and then we were just looking at how the IRS is pulling all of that information together for the, all the individual IT projects that they were already working on. And you did find that they had developed a reference architecture, a roadmap, and a pilot program, which seems to put them probably ahead of a lot of agencies. I can't necessarily speak to other agencies, but yes, they were definitely already midstream on this zero trust architecture implementation. They have a plan. We made a few recommendations that basically should improve future planning, but they are already well underway in the world of zero trust architecture implementation, for sure. And they had also hired a contractor to kind of give a third-party view, and you took a look at what that contractor found, fair to say? Absolutely. We looked at, and the IRS had done their own internal assessment. The Department of Homeland Security issued its own zero trust maturity model for federal agencies to use to evaluate their essentially their progress on their zero trust implementation. The contractor that the IRS hired also looked at, you know, evaluated where the IRS was against those that maturity model, of which there are you know, five pillars, and I don't know if you're familiar with the model, but basically there's the identity issue that I already mentioned for user access management, looking at devices, you know, are all devices uh, inventoried, and does the IRS know how to prevent, detect, and respond to incidents on each of those devices. And then there's three other pillars. You've got applications and workloads, networks, and then data. And in each of those pillars, there's you know a list of capabilities that agencies should be prepared to deploy. And they range from routine empirical testing of applications, monitoring vulnerability reports at the application level, 
with regards to networks, you need to encrypt traffic, break down perimeter points of entry into isolated environments, and that's especially important uh, with an agency the size of the IRS that spread throughout the country. And then looking at data, monitoring sensitive data, making sure that they're logging sensitive access requests of sensitive data and that kind of thing. So the contractor also evaluated the IRS against their, you know, the CISA's maturity model. And, you know, they found that, yes, there's work that needs to continue developing, but overall, they're in a good position to continue this work. We're speaking with Jenna Whitley. She's Director of Enterprise Services at the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. And you found that, yes, they've got all these great plans, reference architecture, roadmap, testing, and so forth, but there's still some things they got to do to really push this big old boulder over the top of the mountain. Yeah, that's right. Well, we recommended a couple of things. First of all, we wanted them to go ahead and try to develop a budget estimate for all of the various projects and initiatives they're working on that will help them achieve the zero trust architecture. Right now, that information is spread across a number of different information technology functions. The IRS IT organization is large. They have a lot of, you know, great people working and on a lot of different priorities. But as of yet, there was not a consolidated sort of budget amount that could help them forecast how much all of this was going to cost long term. We also recommended they revise their zero trust architecture plan to include defined roles and responsibilities. Again, that goes back to the IRS OIT organization being you know, large and a lot of different efforts going on that will help address the zero trust architecture, the various pillars and whatnot to help them achieve that maturity uh, that the CISA and OMB have asked them to do. The third is to enhance their roadmap to include completion schedule for some of these capabilities and prioritize activities within each of the five pillars of that CISA's maturity model that I mentioned. And finally, we asked them to reassess their zero trust architecture implementation progress against the maturity model to inform revised planning and budget formulation. And just a side question, maybe you looked at this, maybe not, but with the prospect of continuing resolution or even an interruption in appropriations coming on October 1st, could that hold off their plans or is this something that could be classified under continuing efforts? And if they had even a CR, they could continue to spend on zero trust development. I can't really comment on the what they would be spending their money on for continuing investment. Since so much of zero trust architecture is cybersecurity related, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be part of what they would do on a daily basis. It's, it's a 24-7 operation cybersecurity is. Sure. And so is the IRS for that matter. <laughs> There's always something coming or <laughs> yeah. going out of there. And That's agents... right. So, so much of zero trust architecture is cybersecurity already. You know, that it, it, the nation's taxpayer data is not going to go unprotected. And did the agency generally accept and agree with the recommendations? And what do they plan to do next according to how they answered you? They did. They agreed to all of our recommendations and planning is uh, ongoing. We probably end up revisiting this audit in the next fiscal year. I, you know, TIGDA has not completed its annual audit planning process yet. 
but I imagine we'll see more from them here in the future. Well, I think the IRS CIO and technology shop has a lot of, it's like a horse with a lot of flies to swat its tail at, but sounds like they've got this one under control in general. In general, they're in a good, they're in a good place. Yes, sir. Jenna Whitley is Director of Enterprise Services at the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, TIGTA. Thanks so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Have a great day. And we'll post this interview plus a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot 
And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, 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 it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back 
and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith. And my belief and my prayer life, and I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.